We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today wants to change the world one orgasm at a time. Her name is Venus O'Hara. She's a sex toy reviewer, a blogger, and an orgasm activist. What a great campaign. But what intrigued me more than anything else is that Venus is interested in spiritual sex. I had to find out more. But before we talk about that, I think I need to know why the world needs an orgasm activist. Perhaps you can explain. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm delighted to be here and spread the word about orgasms, one orgasm at a time. So thank you for this platform. Why the world needs orgasms? Well, I believe we've been fed this idea that men are more sexual than women. I completely disagree with that. I think that women have huge orgasmic and multi-orgasmic potential and they're not reaching it. I'm part of the clitorati (laughs) trying to change the world. (laughs) and trying to deliver this message, which is nothing new. It's been around for a long, long, long time, this knowledge. But I think things have changed, obviously, in recent times with contraception. And I think, I'm, for example, one of the massive obstacles in enjoyment of sex over the millennia for women was the fear of getting pregnant. So now that we've kind of sorted that out with contraception, then I think it's time to enjoy our bodies. And also, I'm from a very Irish Catholic background, a background that doesn't believe that women should have the rights over their own body. So I completely disagree with that. And I'm rebelling against that. I'm trying to deliver a very special and important message. And sort of paint the picture for us of what the sort of messages that were given to young Catholic girls in Ireland when you were growing up. Well, it's interesting, actually, someone asked me about abortion yesterday, and I shared my views. And I was thinking, oh my God, I really need to speak about this more because I think we're just told not to have sex full stop and abstinence is the best form of contraception. This complete disregard for sexuality and it's not spoken about because it's not supposed to exist. And if you do acknowledge its existence, then you're a dirty whore, <laughs> that kind of thing. So, Jeze- so I just think... Uh, Jezebel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there's no gray area for women. It's either black or white, the Madonna whore phenomenon. And I I just disagree with that. I think there is a middle middle ground of health and sexuality. And also, I believe that men have changed as well. And a lot of men just want a woman who knows her mind and is choosing you. She's not there because she has to be with you. And that's something I really believe in is just enjoying your body and and having autonomy over your life. And, And this also ties into financial independence, because in the past, women were trading their virginities in exchange for financial security. And I think we're in a time now where we don't have to do that anymore. And so virginity is not such a big deal. Obviously, it is in some circles and some cultures and for some people, but it's not the case of I'm trading my virginity or my sexuality, the gift of sex for um, financial security. I'm an independent woman. And uh, when I was losing my virginity, I wasn't thinking about my future or jeopardizing it. I was thinking of, I just love this person and I want to feel them inside me, you know? <laughs> that was but it. it wasn't quite such a straightforward experience as all that, was it? Your oh, first no. experience. Perhaps you'd like to share a little bit about that because I think it sort of paints a picture of the time and some of the messages that need to be undone, I suppose. Well, I have a very, had a very 
hardcore experience when I lost my virginity. I'm happy with the person I chose because I was very much in love with that person, even though the relationship ended up being quite toxic. But I think you do learn a lot from those types of relationships as well, as long as you don't see them as your future. And I didn't at the age of 16, 17, definitely not, fortunately. But what happened was I never felt pressured to have sex, which I'm very grateful for. But when we got to a moment where I just felt that I wanted to go to the next level of intimacy, we had sex on my parents' sofa. I discovered years later the phenomenon of stealthing, which is basically, I didn't realise that he wasn't wearing a condom. But you had a whole load of condoms for him, didn't you? Yes, exactly. I knew what was going to happen and I got a condom for him. And because we've been drinking, he had erectile issues. And then um, he thought in his head without consulting me that he would penetrate me until he got hard and then put the condom on. But then he ejaculated immediately. And then I was suddenly like, oh my God, I'm so wet. What's this? And he said, that's because you've got millions of sperm swimming inside you. And I was like, oh my God. And it was a Friday night. So I had to go to my family doctor the following morning with a hangover. The same doctor I'd been to when I had been for, you know, these childhood illnesses like Baruka and chicken pox <laughs> and all of this, you know, it was the first time I went without my mother to prevent myself from becoming a mother. So it was a massive, it was a mind, <laughs> it was like, welcome to adulthood. So, so for me, I was always very responsible in terms of contraception in my life. And every time I was in a situation like that, let's say, taking emergency contraception or going to a family planning clinic, I devoured all of the literature that was around me because I went to a Catholic school, so we didn't have that type of education about sexuality. It all came from magazines and pamphlets and leaflets in family planning centres because there was no Dr. Google back then. And what sort of messages did that give you about sex? Well, I had a very strange... Well, for me, that was a big, crazy experience, of course. But the second time I had sex, which was three days after, <laughs> it, ended up, it was actually Valentine's Day. I didn't have that, you know, bleeding experience or pain, even though my first experience was painful emotionally, or I didn't have any of those experiences that many girls report. The first time I had sex, let's say it's painful or there's bleeding. I had none of that. So the second time I had sex, I was very relaxed. I was already taking contraception. We weren't drunk or anything. So the condoms were, didn't have a problem with that. So I just came and came. And I had all these orgasms and I was just completely blown away by the whole experience. And I was very much in love. It was a Valentine's Day. And then my boyfriend at the time told me that he loved me. So it was like I was on a cloud. And then when I spoke to my female friends about how a wonderful sex was, they just looked at me like I had two heads or something. And also I was having orgasms from penetration with no clitoral stimulation. So I was on cloud nine because I was reading in all these magazines that women weren't able to have orgasms from penetration and only 30% did or something. And most women did require clitoral stimulation or they were clitoral or vaginal. So I was like, oh, vaginal, great. So, <laughs> so it, was, it was the greatest pleasure I've ever experienced in my whole life. It was just, I can't even describe it with words. And then it was so good that I ended up putting up with a lot of maybe toxic things emotionally with this person because I was just so, <gasps> wow. And obviously I couldn't replicate this type of joy with someone new because I was very much in love. <laughs> that sounds absolutely wonderful. What did that do to your thoughts about all the sex education or lack of sex education you'd had up to that point? I think I just took most of it with a pinch of salt. I didn't agree with the Catholic sex education curriculum, for sure. But I was reading a magazine called More at the time. The slogan was, smart girls get more. And they had position of the fortnight. So that's where I got my main uh, <laughs> sex 
sex education from. And I'm so grateful for those writers who took risks because I remember that magazine was actually banned or it was, became a top shelf magazine at the time. I'm grateful for all those writers who did take a risk and, and did share information because it was the only information that someone like me could get back then. Obviously, I'm from an Irish Catholic family, but I was growing up in England. So I was seeing two sides to the story. You know, there was a different message in mainstream media, a very different message from the one I was receiving at home or at school. And in a way, that's possibly a little bit better because when you get a monoculture, it's very easy to go along with it. When you've got two, you begin to start questioning and coming up with your own ideas. Exactly. But did you take the same sort of path as the rest of your girlfriends at school when it came to sex? Or were you, how should I put it, an outlier in some kind of way? I guess so. I always had some female friends along my journey who were more sexual. But it's interesting because I'm all about really enjoying it, like from a woman's perspective. That's always been my message and how my experience as well. But I remember there was one girl who was at university who seemed to enjoy sex a lot. And I used to talk to her about our conquests, whatever. And years later, we met up and she told me she didn't have an orgasm until she was 30. So it seems that a lot of women are using sexuality for attention and for love and for validation. It wasn't really about the pleasure. Whereas for me, I've never had a one night stand. I've never kind of been drunk at 3am and gone home with a stranger or anything like that, because I've always been all about real genuine pleasure. And that's why I feel so strongly about my work, because I don't think this message is really out there. So yeah, it was a very different experience. Also, when I spoke to other female friends about it, they were just like, oh, sex is for men, that type of attitude, which I think a lot of women do have. So how do we change the message that it's okay to have sex when you're not drunk, which seems to be half of the <laughs> problem, really? Well, yeah, it is. And it's also about relaxation. I don't drink alcohol. I think alcohol is a libido killer, definitely. And I think it mm. makes you make the wrong decisions, basically. And also there's lots of research to prove that you're not as sensitive down there when you're drunk. I mean, it's not so easy to have an orgasm or whatever, but it just kind of relaxes you or disinhibits you in, in other ways. I think that's the way of putting it. It disinhibits rather than actually turns you on. Exactly. And it can make you feel as though you're having a great time with someone, but you're not really doing anything out of the ordinary. You're just more relaxed, perhaps. Because one of the things I've found, I've been talking to couples for 35 years about sex, is that more often than not, women respond to men's turn on and stimulation rather than actually becoming turned on themselves first and then entering into the sexual sphere. So they don't actually know really what they want because they're just responding to somebody else. How do you think we break that cycle? Well, I think there's far too much emphasis on penetration, although I loved it. <laughs> I loved it so much, so much in, in my, when I was starting to become sexual. But I do believe that there is too much emphasis on penetration. And one of my number one tips after have sex with people you genuinely like is to completely eliminate. <laughs> Sounds simple, but not many people do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's just so wise. That's why I was laughing. Yeah. My number two tip would be to eliminate penetration. And if you do that, you'll just discover lots of different things. And uh, I think it's always good to try, let's say massage, who doesn't love a massage and just get to know different parts of your body. It's just too much tits, ass and penetration. And uh, if you do that all the time, then it's going to get boring after a short period of time, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, my number one tip is actually really rather like yours. I think the greatest problem is what I call the all or nothing scenario. So either you're going to go the whole way to penetrative orgasm or attempt orgasm, 
or you're going to do nothing at all. So when your partner sort of sidles up to you on the sofa, you have to decide at that moment, do I want to go all the way or is it a complete no? And there's so many things in between from just sort of lying there stroking each other in a sensual sort of way through to, you know, famous swinging from the chandeliers. But it's sort of almost, you could either go for everything or nothing. And there's this huge space in the middle that actually I think both men and women want to inhabit, but culturally we've been told that we've got to go for the A experience. Oh, definitely. I think that that could be even more prevalent with people when a couple's just had a baby or there's just maybe they're going through a dry spell when, let's say, a man tries to massage the woman's neck and she'll think, oh no, he's doing that because he wants to end up having sex. So I definitely think there should be some middle ground and some more exploration of intimacy instead in the erogenous zones. I think it's really good to mix it up. Now, you started doing fetish and erotic photography. How did you get into that? This is really funny, actually, because I was working in export sales here in Barcelona. Because so, of my, I like my languages. I speak French and obviously English and Spanish and Catalan. My mission was to set up an export department in the printer. And I've printed out the Yahoo business directory of all the publishers in London. And I had the pages in my hand and out jumped erotic fetish. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to visit those people. So I always had this kind of like sexual, I was always interested in sexuality to a point where I was always talking about it with female friends or researching mm-hmm. about it online. So I guess this, this was the universe pushing me towards this path. It was a massive sign, you know? So anyway, it was 2004 and I did a whole week's meetings in London trying to get new clients to print art books. And I remember I went to visit some, we're talking about really nice, let's say, Mm -hmm. coffee table books, hardback, you know, very artistic images and that really appreciate and are a celebration of sensuality. And so that's the type of stuff I was printing. So I got to know people in this world in London and my first sale was a book called Going Down. (laughs) It was amazing. And it wasn't about deep sea diving, I assume. (laughs) Definitely not. It was very pink. So I was saying to the guys on the press, you know, go easy with the magenta, you know, it was hilarious. I have a whole shelf of books that were my orders back then. It was hilarious. And for me, it was incredibly insightful to go to London and have these meetings and be sitting around going, yeah, going down, how many pages, what what type of grammage on the paper, blah, blah, blah. So I just loved speaking about sexuality in a very matter of fact manner and seeing it as a normal thing because it is a normal thing. It's, it's healthy, et cetera. And then soon after that time, the phones with cameras came out. So my boyfriend at the time took a load of pictures of me and I sent them to one of my clients in London. I said, if you're looking for an erotic model, here I am. And they said, actually, we are looking for one to be our secretary. <laughs> so I went to do my printing meetings and then I went to do some fetish modeling. And I absolutely loved the experience because I was always painting nudes at A-level, for example. I always appreciated the female form and the Venus. That's why I thought I was born maybe 500 years too late because I always <laughs> felt like a Venus. I always loved the redheads reclining nudes and that appreciation of female beauty. So then I actually became the Venus like in front of the camera. So that was a very strange situation for me because I was also doing painting and drawing classes here in Barcelona, but always as a spectator. So suddenly I became in the foreground, but I was also an art director. I was saying how I wanted the pictures to be. And then here in Barcelona, there are many photographers. So I was doing lots of exchanges with photographers, you know, getting the prints. We'd do an exchange just so I'd get free photos, basically. So I had all this massive collection of photos. And then when I hit my crisis of 2009, when I was working in real estate, I thought, it's now or never, I'm going to start a blog with all this material that I have. So we'll talk about that in a moment, but I'm just sort of interested in what would you be wearing to be the sexy secretary, for example? 
Well, I never did explicit work or I never interacted with anyone else. I never showed my genitals, but I was always, let's say, kind of showing some stockings and suspenders, high heels. And that's the beauty of fetishism, really, because it's about celebrating non-sexual body parts. Let's say it could be the feet or the neck or objects such as high heels and latex or actions, which could be tickling, for example. So it's really taking something conventional and sexualizing it at the same time. So it really requires imagination on the spectator's behalf. And that's what I liked about it. It was almost like playing a very playful exchange with the spectator. For example, if I took a picture with just a blindfold on and my mouth half open, even though there's nothing explicit there, it can say a lot of things to different people. That's the kind of thing I like. It was more the intelligent side of sexuality rather than porn. It's like, here it is. It's a kind of low-hanging fruit. It's very obvious. But fetishism requires some type of sexual intelligence, in my opinion. So that's what that's what I really liked. And then when to start my blog, I had to start writing about it to actually get the SEO and get some traffic, really. So that's how I became a writer. So first of all, it started with pictures, and then it became more about the writing. And so although fetish can very easily get a little bit of a seedy name, actually, it's about moving away from just penetrative sex. It's actually asking you to think about other things you might enjoy. It's actually looking at different parts of the body and different items and different kinds of fabrics as well, because fabrics can be quite sensual. Were you using rubber and those sort of kind of things as well? I wasn't get into that, what you would call a traditional fetish model. I, I don't have that many heels. I have one latex dress or something. So I was kind of really focusing on all different things. For example, I made a fetish glossary on my website with 50 fetishes and they'd be comprising wet clothes and tickling, ankle fetish, all these different things and foot fetish. I agree with what you just said, but also in the fetish world, there are people who are only into one thing and that just becomes really boring. I call them mono fetishists. And people can only be obsessed with one thing over and over again. And that's when it gets very boring. And if you're going out with someone who just wants that one thing all the time, it's very boring indeed. So I was always interested in different aspects of fetishism. I just found it really playful and interesting. It was an artistic challenge almost to make a blindfold erotic or mm. long hair or all these different things. And also when I started my fetishes, it was really interesting because there was a webcam company that wanted a fetish consultant to help them who had this kind of insight to help them make more money from their fetish webcamers. And so I explained to them of what fetishists are looking for and what the whole thing is about, because they did not understand it at all. For example, another fetish is fur, like women wearing fur, like Venus in mm. furs. So it's interesting in this webcam world, there were some people who were letting it all hang out, masturbating nude, who were, let's say, charging $1 per minute. Whereas the fetish women who were all dressed, they're just showing a high heel and moving it once in a while without even showing their face, or with these big nails like going into an apple, they were charging $5 a minute because they're using their brains as well. So I was kind of like helping them to kind of exploit this fetish category a bit more because they were the ones bringing in the money, you know? So it's a very interesting thing. It's very niche. And this is all before Fifty Shades of Grey because that's a bit different. I think people think fetishism is the same as BDSM and it's not really. It's about imagination. Well, I think so, yeah. I think the definition would be a non-sexual body part, let's say not breasts, not genitals. <laughs> so it could be the feet, it could be the neck, or it could be a non-sexual object or a non-sexual action, let's say tickling or smoking or something like that. So, As you mentioned in 2009, you hit rock bottom, you had no money, you had an empty fridge and rats in your apartment. I mean, how could yeah. anything get better than that? <laughs> 
So talk me through what happened. Well, I never had that entrepreneurial spirit. I was someone who wanted someone to read my CV and think I was talented and give me a good job and some security. You know, that's all I wanted. But the universe had different ideas for me. And I was really pushed to my limits because I was working in luxury real estate. So I had no salary. It's really ironic because I had no food at home. And one of my clients gave me a bottle of Verve Clicquot for my next sale. And it was in the fridge for four months. And that's when I did drink back then. <laughs> I don't think I could have lived without it. But anyway, I had this bottle of in my fridge. And I was thinking, when I open you, oh my God, it's going to be a big day, you know? And during that summer, I had family deaths, a family wedding that I couldn't even afford to go to, and a rat infestation. And the reason I didn't leave my job was because I was negotiating some sales. So it was really kind of like feast and famine lifestyle at the time because, you know, I had no money, but then I was in luxury apartments Monday to Friday with these really rich people. And a lot of my clients had online businesses and I thought, well, I'm just as clever as they are. I could do the same thing. So that's when I started to think about creating my own website because I was tired of working for someone else and being good at what I did and not reaping the benefits. You know, it was a now or never kind of situation. And I think once you make a decision to go on a certain path, and if it's the right path, then lots of other things will happen to kind of help you on your way. And that's exactly what happened to me because within a few months I had workers at Venus. It was amazing. So almost immediately things just picked up and I was able to make a living from my blog. So what was it like naming yourself? Well, I had the name already. It was a kind of hobby on the side when I was working in export sales as the part-time fetish model. I, I made up this name because I'd always loved the Venus for many reasons. I studied fine art, so I loved the reclining Venus. I identified with the Venus. And then I also read Venus in Furs, which I really identified with because it was a redhead with green eyes who was dominant. And that's what was my thing at the time as well. So that part was very easy. And the O'Hara, because my family is Irish and I grew up spending my summers in the place where Maureen O'Hara had her house. So it was a very glamorous name. So an Irish Venus, here I am. <laughs> Celtic kind of Venus. And yeah, so it's been, um, I really identify with this name. And also as I've become spiritual, it's interesting because I'm not interested in fetishism or BDSM at all anymore. Because I think when I was into that type of thing, part of it was ego-based. Whereas now the Venus is about the tantric goddess, everyone's a goddess, everyone is a goddess type thing. It's more about we are, I'm, I'm on a level playing field with my lover, I, I'm not better or I don't need to be worshipped, you know. I do need to be worshipped, but I don't need that <laughs> adoration, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. You don't need them bowing down. No, well, I just a little bit. Me, my God. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not into that. I mean, I was at the time. I was, I have been into that in the past, but I think it was related to ego issues and validation and stuff like that. Whereas now I see it as a bit silly. <laughs> I don't really am into that at all. But it's amazing mm -hmm. how the name has actually worked in these different spheres because it's actually what could be more spiritual than a goddess. Exactly. But now my message is about reviving the goddess everywhere, really, in all women, the female orgasm. And also now I've, I had a spiritual awakening in 2017. I think before it was about, when I started this journey, it was about overcoming shame and guilt to actually enjoy your body because pleasure is just the beginning. But I've experienced pleasure for a long time and now I'm using sexual energy to go into even higher realms. I've been using my sexual energy to manifest for the last three years. So I'm sex magician these days. I practice sex magic. So explain to me how you manifest through sex. First of all, you have to explain to me exactly what manifesting is. 
Manifesting is basically, if you write down a list of things that you want, it's trying to make them transform from ideas into actually existing in your physical world. So, so give us an example of something you've manifested then. This apartment that I'm in, I've already had millions of orgasms before I came here. And just some growth in my business, really. I started doing that three years ago. I started to really grow and I paid all my debts off in one phone call, which was absolutely amazing. And getting top-notch blood results as well as recently ill. So I've manifested a lot of things, but it's a very spiritual process for me now, masturbation. I have my crystals by my bed and I listen to affirmations while I masturbate. So, So basically sex magic is let's say before you masturbate, you would think of an intention. And then when you're about to orgasm, you really focus on that intention again. And then afterwards, when you're just kind of after orgasm to normal stage, just kind of getting your breath back, the resolution stage, then you'd also be thinking about whatever it is you want to manifest. So for me now, every experience of masturbation is about that. And how does that change the orgasm? Well, it changes a lot because it's a lot to get your head around these kind of non-sexual stimuli. (laughs) It's not just about thinking about what turns you on. I think before I discovered this, I was just almost having a race with myself to just think about all my erotic triggers and just have an orgasm. Whereas when I discovered sexual transmutation and sex magic, I just became more... It takes a longer time, basically. It takes a lot longer. Is the orgasm less pleasurable or is it more sort of, for want of a better word, cosmic rather than Oh, definitely. I was was just about to say cosmic. And sometimes I've had experiences where I felt like I literally am seeing this white light because it is a kind of more, it's more of a celebration of this beauty, this power. I now I understand why sex is so taboo because it's not anyone's interest that people know about this powerful force. The sexual energy is the most powerful energy. So you realize that the religion and all these things, they're trying to play it down. It's not about taboo. It's because it's powerful and it's not in anyone's interest for people to have this power. So this power is being sucked away by fast food, by porn, by all these other stimulus of the sex cells phenomenon that we see everywhere. That's kind of a more to take your attention away from this great power. Now, I was thinking actually about what is sex the other day, and it's actually really quite difficult to define because we can sort of very narrowly say, you know, penetrative intercourse, masturbation and oral sex. But actually, there's a huge amount of other things that could actually be very sexy. I mean, there's a certain sexual energy of us sitting here talking about sex and talking about cosmic orgasms and everything else like that. It it has a sexual energy to it, doesn't it? Well, sexual energy is creative energy. So anything creative. I think a lot of creative people are okay with not having children, which is quite interesting. Because if you think about the chakra system, the second chakra, which is a sacral chakra, that's where we experience pleasure, emotions, sexuality, and creative energy. And before I became spiritual, I used to write a lot in Spanish media. I was writing lots of articles for El Pais. And when I had writer's block, I would just go and lie down and masturbate for a while. And suddenly I had all these ideas. And now years later... I realized that I was just stimulating my sacral chakra because that's what creativity is. So most people might procreate, whereas other people like creatives are actually creating art. I would compare, you know, writing a book and publishing a book is almost like having your own baby, you know, so it's a very similar energy. And I think that our whole society is actually less for the fact that we've sort of carved off sex into something that happens in the bedroom and is a certain number of acts. 
Whereas actually, it sort of can be everywhere and anywhere rather than sort of, you know, getting down and dirty as the phrase goes. So I think this is a way of explaining what you're meaning that we're unfortunately, when we're thinking about masturbation, we're all we're thinking about is stimulation of certain parts of the body. But in fact, actually, it's a whole load of other kinds of energy. Am I making any sense? Oh, totally. There's also a practice called sexual transmutation. Yes, I wanted to know about that. So how does sexual transmutation work? I came across sexual transmutation in the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, which I highly Mm -hmm. recommend. And it's a bestseller. It's from 1937. And it's a very popular entrepreneurship, success or money book. So I was very shocked to find that this book mentioned sexual transmutation, which is not a book about sex at all. But what he was saying was that most people who are very successful in life, they have high libidos, but they're not necessarily promiscuous. Because promiscuity is a thief of your energy as is porn. So it's really cultivating this energy, harnessing it and trying to transmute it into a different type of outlet pleasure and just letting go of it straight away is probably not the most intelligent way to use the energy. So that's where I came across it. So I had a kind of eureka moment with that. And I went down a rabbit hole and just really researched it a lot. And then I was thinking, I'm a sex toy designer and tester. I can't give up my orgasm. But you could be on a train and have some, in simple terms, people don't really know how it works, but I'll explain. It's just, let's say you feel aroused at one point and you could be on a train so you can't just masturbate, whatever. And then you might think about with your breathing and your thoughts, maybe your pelvic floor, that's something that you really want to manifest or achieve in life. It could be you want to buy a new house or a new project at work. And then you just kind of like think about that and direct your thoughts towards that thing and maybe start working on it or start writing in that aroused state. It's just transmuting, almost imagining this energy going up the chakras into something else. So instead of having a physical sexual outlet for it, that sounds all well and good, which is something you could practice if you're in a situation where you can't masturbate or whatever. But I thought, well, I can't do that all the time. It's almost like a form of sexual denial. So I can't do that if I'm a sexual sex toy tester and designer. So then I discovered something called sex magic, which is a very similar concept, but the practices are very different because you are stimulating yourself and taking it to orgasm. It's just literally you're directing the intention of the masturbation and the actual orgasm towards that goal. When I discovered this, I was living in a penthouse apartment by the beach in Barcelona that I couldn't furnish because I couldn't afford to. And I was freezing cold and I was thinking, oh my God, I don't know if I can afford this lifestyle that I've created for myself in another situation with no money. And money is a part of energy as well, which is quite interesting. So anyway, I discovered all these things and it was March and I was thinking, I don't know if I'm going to pay my rent this month. And I had 60 orgasms that month, one every morning, one every night when I just discovered this practice. And then soon after, I started manifesting. I paid off my debts that summer. I furnished my apartment. I just, a lot of amazing things happened to me. I had some incredible work collaborations that I couldn't have imagined, but I was really like focusing all my sexual energy into abundance, really. And yeah, it all started happening for me. So I'm very grateful for that. And also this apartment I'm in now and many other things. So sex toys, what would you say is the reason why a lot of people are very resistant to sex toys? I think they have a bad reputation, which is part of my mission to kind of overcome that as well. I think people think sex toys are is a cold experience. And I know of, I mean, I obviously talk about this a lot. And I remember I was in a situation in a party where this girl was saying to me, oh, I've never used a sex toy. It's a very cold experience. And I was like, have you tried? No. So the people are just not interested in discovering what they don't know. And they would rather go on Tinder and have sex with some stranger who doesn't care about them, which I can't understand. But a sex toy is just a tool. It's just a tool to help you connect with yourself. 
that's what I want to uh, share with the world. And also that you can discover different things about your body, different types of stimulation, different, you know, it's just cute. What have you discovered about your body from sex toys? Oh, so many things. I had ignored my clitoris for so many years and now I'm all about the clitoris because when I discovered sex, it was all penetration, penetration all the time. And I thought, oh my God, I'm so lucky that I can have orgasms like this when a lot of women can't. So I kind of ignored my clitoris. So I've really had a clitoral awakening <laughs> for sure. But also that on, a, on an emotional level, it's really liberated me from toxic relationships because I was always, because I enjoyed sex so much. I found that I was often in relationships that I was there because of the sex kind of thing. I put up with a lot of terrible things because of that sexual connection. And then I kind of liberated myself from that destructive pattern. So if somebody is listening to this and they're thinking, well, maybe I should consider sex toys. My guess is it's quite a broad category, sex toys. Where would one start? What sort of kind of area? And how would you know what would be right for you? I'm thinking particularly for women on this. Well, I think a good place to start would be the classic wand massager, which is a type of toy which has been around for a long, long, long time. And it's something you can use also for couples who want to kind of get in discover sex toys because literally you can give massages to each other but the wand massager has a very big head with a very strong vibrating motor inside and that can really kind of wake up your vulva if you use it externally and also it's really fantastic pictorial stimulations it's almost so good that it's kind of like saying wake up vulva wake up wake up (laughs) so that's how i describe it but i do believe that some women buy sex toys and then they can be disappointed because it's not giving them the sheep gripping orgasms they expected. I think it's important to not expect miracles. I think it's about just getting to know yourself and maybe having a 15 minute session just to kind of connect with yourself sexually, you can turn it into like a self-love ritual with having a bath, nice music and incense and stuff like that and just connect for 15 minutes. So if you're not having orgasms, stop. So I think people just expect just to kind of put it on the clitoris and, and then have boom. But that's not like that. It's not really like that. It took me six months after buying my first sex toy to actually having an orgasm. I realized that for me, at least it was a mind-body connection, which was missing in the equation. It's not just a physical thing. And would it be an idea to use it on different parts of the body rather than going straight to the genitals? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's important to, that's something we do in masturbation in general. I think there's no foreplay with ourselves. You know, we just go straight to the genitals. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess I would say for most women, most women would want external stimulation, but still they're going straight for the clitoris, whereas on the breast is a good place to start. And also really using your hands as well to actually cup your vulva and just actually caress yourself with your hands before Mm -hmm. doing it with a toy and maybe having a bath beforehand, maybe reading a book that you like because it's not obviously our biggest sexual organ is the brain. There's so many things you can do to get ready for that moment and also maybe watching something erotic or maybe thinking about someone or some music. Can the wand be used on the penis as well and on the scrotum and various other things like that too? Or would that not I know that some men do like it, but there are some attachments that you can buy that would go on top and they would have a more kind of C-shaped silicon part, which you could use as a stroker. I do think that the wand is great for couples because 
everyone loves a massage and everyone loves it on their shoulders and on their back. And you can take, let's say, if you're with a partner, 15 minutes each on each person just to kind of get that intimacy going and the nudity and being at, at ease with each other. Because I think everyone's got some aches and pains, you know, <laughs> so that they've taken care of, you know. So I think it's really good to maintain intimacy. And I think that's where I would really recommend that because otherwise, you know, some people might feel intimidated by a sex toy or, um, or they might think it's too sexual, whereas a wand massager is very sensual. And it's also a fantastic littoral simulation simulator. Have you been in a relationship since you discovered spiritual sex? How would I say in a diplomatic way? <laughs> I, I think I'm in a relationship that's not, I don't see a future in it. I think the pandemic has really influenced a lot of relationships. And I don't know if you know the Maslow pyramid. Yes. Yeah. So I think me and maybe a lot of people are in the kind of like survival mode and that really affects your relationships. So I've been with Mr. Right now. <laughs> If that makes any sense. Not Mr. Future, but I'm, I'm kind of getting more ready for Mr. Future because I've gone through all these massive changes that I don't think I've felt ready before. I was just wondering how you explain to your partner, I'd like to have spiritual sex because I sort of think that might be a little intimidating, to be honest. If somebody said, I want sex to be a spiritual experience, I mean, I, that's how I want it to be. But I think if somebody said to me, yes, let's have spiritual sex together, I would be terrified. I've been having mostly spiritual sex with myself, to be honest, but with the person I've been with for the last three years, it has been a very deep emotional experience anyway. And he's kind of a spiritual person, but I think we both know that we're not each other's future. <laughs> That's another podcast. <laughs> The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Now, one of the advantages of being a member of our supporters circle is that you can have your issues or your letters discussed by me and my guests. Venus, I think that you might have something to say on this letter. I love my husband with all my heart above all others because he shows his love for me all the time on everything else beyond sex. He is a big help to me around the house. Most importantly, he worries when I'm not feeling good. He goes into Dr. Mum mode and he does everything possible to make me feel better, such as massaging my painful areas. And he makes homemade medicines and teas which always work. So overall, when I compare him to all other lovers, I have to take a back seat to my most important sex issue. He does not like to perform oral sex, and that's the most effective way for me to orgasm. I had only one partner in the past who would perform oral sex on me and he would get totally into it and he could do this for at least 30 minutes. Oh my goodness, it took my mind off every single worry in life. Honestly, I miss it. But he had a thousand personality flaws and I would frequently be embarrassed by being associated with him in public because he had a bad temper with other men only. He was very jealous but very unfaithful. Lovely combination, jealous and unfaithful. Mmm... That is why I feel that I have to take what I can with a man who proves his love to me is pure. We're at the point in our lives that being together is more important and enjoying each other's company is a blessing. However, I do miss oral sex a lot. So, what do you think, Venus? I can totally empathise with that on many levels, actually. I, I've always attracted the kind of domestic 
guy as well in my life, a guy who was nurturing and quite, I'm, I'm terrible. <laughs> I'm a domestic, I'm not a domestic goddess. So I always attract that type of guy. But the oral sex is very, very important for me too, because I only had my clitoral awakening quite recently. But even before that, I've been with guys who are very generous kind of linguists. And that's the kind of guy that I love, the guy who's really loves and adores the vulva and the clitoris and all that and really wants to give pleasure. That for me is a massive, massive turn on. And I, I remember being with a guy once who I'd given oral sex to on many occasions, but he never went down on me. And that just did not have a good feeling for me. For me, it would be a deal breaker. And that particular person, I would never consider having something long-term it's just not so free flowing if you're withholding this great pleasure. And also it's a very sensitive topic because it's how do you approach it? Because I know there's some guys that I've been with who would go down on me and they have an erection during cunnilingus. And that's a massive turn on because I know that it's a turn on for them as well. Whereas some guys will just go down because they think they should and they're just doing it because they're going to get a blowjob at the end or, or whatever, but they're not aroused by the situation. And with those guys, I don't even want them near me. I'd rather they didn't, <laughs> to be honest. I want to be, you know, 100% generosity in that area or, or nothing. So for me, I just, I can't imagine going to that area of, of having me in a relationship with someone who's orally stingy. <laughs> I think it is such a suffering. So I think it's a very, difficult situation. I think instead of asking for it, I don't believe in asking for things either. I think what you can do is express desire or, or express your tastes, say that you really enjoy this, blah, blah, blah. And then the other person can do it if they want to, because otherwise it's not going to be that much good if someone's going to do it because I feel like they're obliged to. I mean, I just don't think that would be a good situation to be in. And are you measuring the turned onness by how hard their penis is? Well, having an erection during that time is a, a sign where other people can have a floor pointer and they're just kind of like not really into it. Or some guys are just really into it. Or it could be that they're just so focused on you that actually they're not focused on their penis at that point. That's just one sign. But I think you can tell, you know, when people are really into the taste and just wanting to devour you. I, I'm very fortunate that I've experienced that. And I'm just so grateful to those wonderful men who have shared that with me. But I've also had the opposite experience of someone who's not going there. So it's just like, oh. And so what advice would you give to somebody who's in a committed relationship and they, like this lady, she loves her husband. They have a good relationship. So it can't be a deal breaker, but she's missing it. How do you think? <laughs> you get this? This is a, an oral sex simulator, a clitoral sucking toy. So I would bring this into the equation. All <laughs> oh, right. How would you introduce that? Oh, I've heard about this amazing toy. It's like a cunnilingus simulator. I'm going to get it. Mm -hmm. That could be one way because I really yeah. love cunnilingus. But also I think there are some ways, for example, you know, these board games are really cool. Right. Tell me about these board games. There are many board games for couples and I really recommend them. They have a lots of different activities in them that are sexual, things you won't normally do. You don't really know what's coming next. So I would recommend getting an erotic board game. And there's one that's very famous called Monogamy, like Monopoly, Monogamy. I haven't played that one, but I have had some, because I'm obviously testing different toys, and I've had some toys or some games that I've had tried in the past. And I think they are a great icebreaker and a great kind of barrier knocker. <laughs> you know, it's a really great way to kind of get to know the other person's taste as well, because we don't do that enough. I mean, I went to witness a professional dominatrix at work. It was a very insightful experience. But what she did with her client was she had a list of activities. He had to say what he liked and what he didn't like because he was being dominated. So she had to know where the boundaries are. And I thought, why don't couples do that? You know, just actually have a list of things that they like and don't like and just compare. 
So I think there are lots of kind of questionnaires and mm. games that couples can use and resources like this to actually talk about things they like. So in these situations, you can discover things that your partner would never share with you, like that they actually like black coloured underwear or whatever it is. They, everyone's got some kind of kink or some kind of fetish they haven't shared with their partner and just do it by talking. I think that's a great way. I had a client who wanted to spice things up with his partner and he researched on the internet ideas like pretending to be teacher and naughty pupil and sort of lots of games like that. And he wrote them down, put them in a hat and they just picked ones out at random and they discovered quickly what worked and what didn't work. And that was a much better way than actually just saying, what do you like? Because if you asked, what do you like? I mean, you know, where do you start? Or you've either got no idea, but some ideas, you begin to quickly see if you're a role player or not, if you like fabrics or not. You know, if the idea of, you know, fun furs are not fun, that's fine. But you sort of find these things out with this sort of imagination box. So you could even create one for yourself. But you mentioned monogamy. What's the type of toy called that stimulates oral it's sex? It's called a Satisfier Pro 2. This is the world's best-selling sex toy for a good reason. You place this round part here on the clitoris and it uses air... It's air pulse technology to actually stimulate the clitoris without touching it. So it's a kind of similar concept to cunnilingus and it's having huge success. It's worked from word of mouth and it's sold double digit millions. You know, we're talking a lot. And they haven't even done a huge campaign. It's just been the word of mouth, <laughs> literally. An oral sex toy that succeeded with word of mouth. It just had to be, didn't it? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And also going back to roleplay, that's been a huge part of my life as well. In my first boyfriend, I used to do roleplay all the time. Give me a couple of suggestions for role plays then. For example, when I was 16 and my boyfriend at the time was 19, his parents were very scared that I would get pregnant or something. So they wouldn't let us be alone in his bedroom. So we had to sit in the kitchen instead. But we just had conversations and they were so erotic. For example, job interviews or the school or something. And then it really helped me to kind of become someone else because otherwise I was feeling like a kind of self-conscious virgin with him. But so I became someone else all the time and I found it incredibly liberating. And also I'd recommend it to couples who are interested in polyamory, but who are afraid of taking the plunge so they can become someone else. And also going out into a bar and pretending you don't know each other. I mean, that's just so horny. You know, having a one night stand with your partner. And you've, you've got to pick them up. Hello, love. You look like a nice girl. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what's your name? And you have different names and you don't know what's happening. It's just really fun. A lot of fun. Hopefully your pickup lines are better than mine. <laughs> well, you just make up this whole persona, you know? I think we're back to the idea of the imagination being an incredibly powerful tool. And, you know, sex mm. becomes boring if you actually take the imagination out. You just do what is safe. And I think that's the problem. Lots of couples just do what they know works. And over time, that just becomes boring. But I mean, I think we've given quite a lot of ideas that hopefully will give you some ideas about how to do something different. So thank you, Venus, for sharing a little bit of your orgasmic lifestyle with us. I've invited you onto The Meaningful Life to talk about what makes life meaningful. And obviously sex is part of that. But what makes life meaningful for you? Well, I'm, I do have an orgasmic lifestyle. Every day is a climax, not just because of my job, but also my lifestyle really is incredible. I believe I'm trying to also promote self-love in other aspects of life. In, for example, in food, I've had no alarm for 12 years. I mean, that's just really cool. I have a very special morning routine. 
I eat organic vegan food that's locally sourced. So I have a self-love budget. I don't have a self-destruction budget. And I have regular massages. I'm a minimalist. So I want to share all these things in my life. And also I meditate. I just have a very, very nice, peaceful lifestyle. And also living in Barcelona is just absolutely amazing. And, and helping people with sexuality and getting nice messages from people who bought this toy that I recommended and they're having mind-blowing orgasms. I think, well, that's so good for my karma. <laughs> and also I go to the gym every day. So I, I just have a very, I think it's really important to love yourself. And that's one of my biggest messages as the, the goddess of self-love. That's what I want to be. The, you know, Venus is the goddess of love. I want to be the goddess of self-love. And if you want to find out more about Venus's content, you'll have all the details in our show notes. And that, unfortunately, is where the conversation ends for regular listeners. But if you want to know the three things that Venus knows deep down to be true and, you know, what I've learned from this podcast, and if there's anything that Venus has learned from talking to me today or something that she has been reminded of that she feels important, all of those things we'll be talking about in our supporters circle a section of this uh, podcast. And if you'd like to join us for that, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.